This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. 
their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Kevin Holtry. Now, Kevin is a veteran law enforcement officer who served in multiple specialties, including SWAT and undercover. He was ultimately shot in an officer-involved shooting, rendering him paralyzed and to a wheelchair. Now, what makes this conversation so powerful is not only hearing his journey into law enforcement leading up to that event and the mental and physical road that he took after, but you will even hear the impact of that injury that came from his service in uniform as we go through this conversation. So I want that to really resonate with you when he's talking about some of the perspectives that he has on law enforcement. This is a man who did walk towards gunfire on multiple occasions, and ultimately that took away some of his physical ability. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kevin Holtry. Enjoy. Well, Kevin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's an honor. It really is. So I also want to say thank you to Roger Shai, who connected us. So as a little icebreaker, how do you know Roger? You know, I knew him for, I'm trying to think I've known him, I should say, at least 10, I don't know, 10 years. He was a defensive tactics instructor before he got promoted to captain and so forth. And we had changed our, uh, I guess what we were doing technically on some things and we had to get certified and so forth. And he was really the guy that for the state of Idaho, he kind of helped, uh, uh, run those things through post and, uh, 
the police academy. And so when we had to get certified in all this different tactics, uh, that's how I first got to know him. And then it just became, you know, we, uh, I don't know, I've, I've been through at least six or seven week long classes with the guy. And then he, he moved really quick and got promoted. And then we just kind of stayed friends and, uh, he became the chief and then I got shot and he's been pretty good to me in terms of, uh, just, you know, checking in periodically and so forth. And, uh, we've talked about a lot of things. I went to Pocatello to their, uh, PD for a couple of days and did, a uh, just a presentation for different, uh, shifts and with my partner and um yeah we just have become friends over the years that's really it so him his name and uh christian zeman who was in uh california i think i've got the right she's moved to florida now um are two chiefs police chiefs that i've had on the show that i think are incredible and you listen to their the fitness standards and it wasn't that they were dictators you know they created a culture that they were growing in as they rose up through the ranks too but the higher level of fitness standards defensive tactics realism in training i mean all these areas and when i think when i've kind of saw the the avaldi incident and then waited for a long time till you know video and and, and reports came out it was jarring because when I listen to Roger and Kristen, that to me is how we should be operating as departments. And I, my last fire department was is potentially could have exactly the same thing that happened in Texas. The the opposite side of the scale, the complete lack of preparation and ownership, and you know foresight to think what could happen. So, without kind of getting political, because it shouldn't be political, and you having trained with Roger, kind of what was your perspective as a law enforcement officer with what we've seen there in Uvalde? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, like oh. I said, it's not it's not about yeah. hanging out to dry, but just a, a law enforcement educator. No, I'll, I'll, I'll hang them out to dry all day long. I mean, I'm not going to pull any punches with that. I I'm always the uh, you know, if I wasn't there, I'm not really going to comment on it, you know, on police actions. Right. Like if you weren't there and you didn't see smell here, everything that was going on and you weren't making quick decisions, I usually stay pretty quiet and I'll kind of formulate what I would have done. Uh, Roger, Shy, and I have, I think, a lot of the same philosophies. And it was always, it wasn't always received, I think, it, by the administration. But I'm a, a firm believer in, I don't, I don't train just for the sake of training. There has to be, it has to be purpose driven. There has to be a reason why you're doing, why you're doing something. And I think, and I don't care what it is, paramedics, fire, police, if you're going to be a defensive tactics trainer, you have to train Frequently, it's a perishable skill, like a lot of things. You have to do it with uh, a purpose. You have to make it realistic. You have to make it difficult so that when, because statistically, most uh, shootings and so forth, a lot of them happen because guys are, they're overwhelmed, you know, and they're, they're not prepared, whether it's not just putting holes in paper and shooting, you know, from a static 15 yard position, but you've got to be able to move. You have to shoot from behind cover, you, you know, shoot with your weak hand or your off hand, your left hand, if you're right-handed. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in the real world. And yeah, and, and a lot of it's mindset. I mean, the warrior mindset and the warrior ethos is, you know, I had my own way I approached uh, really dangerous situations. And that's why Roger and I were, I think we clicked a little bit because when you, yeah, when you, when you're in a fight, it's not, 
that's why boxers spar, right? That's why, because you, you fight different guys and you have to, if you're going to box, you got to know what it feels like to get punched in the mouth, right? Or in the nose, or if you're going to be a firefighter, you have to know what it's like to have your full kit on and hump up 50 flights of stairs, right? I mean, you have to prepare yourself physically and it's embarrassing to me because I take a lot of pride in what I did it's embarrassing. I mean, it's embarrassing that I have people, civilians and friends of mine that are, you know, work for it or whatever. And they want to ask me about the Uvalde thing and why didn't the cops do this? And why didn't they do that? And it's, it is embarrassing because you take an oath and I've done it several times in my life where you put your hand up and you swear that you're going to protect the you know enemies uh, foreign and domestic and you have to put yourself in harm's way it's a dangerous job and i think uh you know the, what happened in uvalde was an absolute disgrace they know it's not a game it's a dangerous profession and you have to prepare yourself correctly and if you don't you get hurt and those guys stood by for they're they're putting hand sanitizer on while kids are getting shot i mean i i i lost i i can't watch it i mean i really can't i just it makes me sick to my stomach. It makes me because everything, everything from uh, Columbine from that day on has changed in the terms of tactical response to critical incidents like that. It, it, you, you don't get the choice of saying, oh, I might get hurt. So I'm going to back out of this one. It doesn't work like that. You have to you're there for a reason. And that reason is to protect these innocent children or the elderly or that was my two things or our children and, and elderly that were my favorite thing to help, you know? And, uh, I, I just, man, I, it, they had just gone through training, you know, active shooter training. And you talk about a, one of the, I don't want to call it, I, I, I wasn't going to say it. I almost said dream call, but a, I guess one of the hairiest calls I, I think, and we just had one in Boise at our, at our shopping center, our big mall here in Boise, maybe a year ago. Uh, some wingnut shot the security guy and then shot, I think, three or four other people. Ended up getting a gunfight with the police, with Boise police out in the parking lot area. And, but you don't have a choice of saying, God, this is getting scary. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to park here behind this dumpster and wait till shit cools off. And then I'm going to go in. It doesn't really work like that. I don't want to say like I'm Mr. Superhero, but it's just the fundamental ethos of uh, a warfighter, right? If you're going to fight and you're going to either get killed or kill somebody or, or harm somebody, you just have to have that mindset. And I did the same thing, you know, every single entry that we did over the years, I always said to myself, I said, oh, man, I'm going to get shot when I go in, which is fine. I said, they're going to shoot at you. Um, you'll probably get hit. Don't, you know, keep fighting, keep fighting. It's always, no matter what, you're just going to keep going, 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 going. If you're a firefighter and you knew somebody, you're by yourself and you have one guy or you have your partner with you and you know that there's a six-year-old on the third floor of an apartment or a walk-up are you going to stand on the ground floor because there's smoke in the building? No, you're going to go save the kid. That's exactly what you do. Is it dangerous? Yeah. It's scary as shit. I don't care what anybody says. If you've never been in a gunfight or in a danger, like that's going to something that's going to kill you. It's scary. And if you say it's not scary, you're full of shit. I don't care who you are. It's, it's a very, but you have to have, you know, the right mindset. And so I don't know what happened in Uvalde. I don't know. 
they get those guys got to give their nuts a tug and find out who they are as men and as police officers and uh, either quit, which they should do, or go to jail, which I think they should go to jail as well. I mean, that's heavy to say that for me to say other cops should do it, but they cost people their lives. And so that's why I get angry about it, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, I agree. And again, it's not about standing on an ivory tower, acting like you're some impenetrable nope. superhero. It's just, and I've, you know, you can check the tapes as they say six years ago i've been saying the same thing lives depend on us and i've worked to be the best version of a firefighter could be now compare me to other people i was never as good as the best rope guy the best you know breaching guy the best paramedic i mean i was just the juggling all the balls that we have and trying to find my best version of me but you know, ultimately, the fitness that even the martial arts, even though technically I'm not going hands on with people usually, unless it's a psych patient or a hypoglycemic and some of these other people that you do have to kind of behind closed doors, give them a little uh, restraint. Um, sure. But yeah, I mean, that is what we signed up for. And if, don't get mm -hmm. me wrong, there are scenarios where we're not, you know, if it's a, a barn burner in a commercial structure, you have no business going in. But as you said, smoke in, in an apartment. I just saw, shared an amazing video of, uh, I forget which department it was. Um, I think it was in the Midwest. An amazing rescue. The, the police initiated it. A single firefighter actually did, uh, you know, vent enter search, basically went through the window. I mean, it was blacked out and uh, found the child and pulled him out. And it was absolutely incredible. And that is it. That is it when it comes down to it. And, you know, I haven't been called onto it. So, so I'm purely you know, hoping that I would have the balls to do it one day. But that is the expectation. I just shared another video of a guy who was a civilian, pulled out a bunch of kids, a bunch of children. And when the fire, you know, you, you see the fire just burning in this house when, when uh, FD arrived. And that was someone who was not paid to do any of this. And they had the courage to do it. That's the thing about it is you have to prepare yourself prior to the incident. And I can't tell you, good Lord. Typically, if there's a fire that pops off somewhere, PD is going to get there first. That's just the way it is. Well, there's this. So they can park in the way of the fire engine. <laughs> of course. And block the hose. No, I've, trust me. I've stood there for hours turning. I've, I've, I've protected a lot of hoses in my career. And, uh, but yeah, you, I've seen cops, you, you see it all the time from their body cams, whether it's a motor vehicle accident and it's on fire and they open the door. That it, it doesn't have to be bullets. You know, it can be fires. It can be a water rescue. We have the, you know, the Boise River runs right through town and the fire department, they just open it up. They, it's, a, it's a very popular thing to do in Boise. It's a really chill river, but it's fairly big. But you get in inner tubes and, you know, you're not supposed to drink beer, but everybody drinks, you know, and it's like a five hour kind of a deal. It's it's really not that dangerous unless you're completely stupid, like tie 15 tubes together and then hit a bridge abutment and then get tangled up. And then out come the heroes, you guys in your cool boat and they run up and down the river all day long, you know, rescuing people from sweepers and, you know, trees in the water and stuff like that. And so, um yeah, there's a lot of danger it, and it isn't just, you know, raging fires, on, you know, and it's but there's there's a lot of danger in no matter what it is from accidents to, you know, name it. So but you better be ready to do what you do, because. Yeah, if you're going to sign up for something and I think we may have talked about it briefly, but it was the same thing. I remember I see it now in the military where 
if something happened, a lot of guys sign up because you get some benefits and then they have to get sent overseas and they go, I don't want to do this. This isn't, you know, this is too sketchy. Yeah, but I think that's the conversation needs to be had. I mean, there's a lot of kind of aiming at the actual boots on the ground, but I've seen, I, I would like to say I've probably been a member of one of the best fire departments in the US and by far one of the worst. And so I've got to see the spectrum, um, you know, people who know, know. But the potential of something happening, for example, in Anaheim, California, I know the response would be incredible. And you'd have a bunch of fit, well-trained men and women respond and save lives. Conversely, where I just left, um, it to me, Ovaldi was a huge, okay, here's, here's exactly what's going to happen if you have that kind of philosophy in your department. And so it's not just on the men and women on the ground, it's every single rank all the way up. So, you know, I hope that some departments will actually take a step back and reevaluate and have the humility to make changes. But others, and I know where I used to work, would just look at it and go, well, that'll never happen here, just as they do with well, every other new miss. a lot of administrators, and I'm going to cut you off. You used one word, and it was humility. And that's one of the toughest things for, we just have a new chief. Um, chief Lee is his name. He came from Portland Police Bureau. I think he was a captain or a deputy chief or something there. Um It, it, it's hard for me to articulate this. And I think guys that have been that you're seeing, I mean, Starbucks just announced they're going to close 16 stores, right? Most of them are in LA, Portland, Seattle. You know why? Because they're too dangerous. Um, cops are just fleeing departments and droves in liberal cities. And I'll say it liberal cities. Um, Blue states, they're the, they're the ones that you're seeing this huge thing, but it's not always a good thing. You know, we hired this chief and within, I think, the first week, maybe the first three days of him being here, he immediately stopped lateral vascular neck restraints, you know, or you can call it a neck restraint, uh, rear naked choke for people that watch MMA, but it's probably by far, it's the number one best defensive tactics tool we've had since the late seventies. We're the first department really in the North. Well, I know for a fact in the Northwest and we, through since the late seventies, we've never had one bad neck restraint, but I've also seen 110 pound female officers holding on to a 200 pound guy by his neck on his back for I mean, come hell or high water, they're going to hold on. And I've seen them put guys to sleep if they get a good, you know, choke on them. Or I won't say choke because it's not technically a choke. It's a, you know, if they get a good neck restraint on somebody, they can put them to sleep. Then they wake up 10 seconds later and they're in handcuffs. It works great. But they just shut it off that fat because the optics of it look bad. I think that the optics of a rear naked choke look a lot less bad than clubbing someone with a nightstick, though. Well, that's what they, that's what I asked. I go, what do you want me to just carry a, you want me to beat somebody with a stick? I've done it. It doesn't work that well. To be honest with you. I could line up a hundred cops right now and say, how many of you have hit somebody with your baton and whatever they'd all put their hands up. I go, how effective was it? And probably 10% they'd go, yeah, it was great. I mean, I've beat guys where I've stopped. I've hit, been hitting him and I go, I better stop. I think I'm really going to hurt this guy. Like it made me uncomfortable. I was hitting him 
so hard. And it was completely, of course, you know, methamphetamine has something to do with it, but you know, well, you know how what stopped the guy in this particular incident was a rear naked choke and he went to sleep in about three seconds and he was handcuffed and he had, but I mean, I, I heard him way worse than my partner who ended up, you know, putting a neck restraint on him. So it's all optics and it's all stupid, but you're seeing a little bit of, I think a shift it's, it's a pendulum that always happens where you go, Oh God, we can't do this. We can't do this. And then you see what happens when they stop, uh, if they defund the police or defund the fire department or defund EMS, uh, we're having a problem, you know, with EMS, which is a County uh, department in our, our city, our, our area. And uh, you know, they're struggling right now uh, with how to fill positions and what they're going to do. And are the fire guys going to all do all EMS runs, you know, and there's all this stuff that goes on when it's actually pretty simple you know what it is? You show up, you have standards, James, you have to be able to do a mile or you have to be able to do fuck, I don't know, 30 pushups, which sounds stupid to say out loud, but there's cops. I would lay, I, I would lay 10, $100 bills in a pile on the ground and say, you do 20 pushups in full kit. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking like, you know, tactical heavy body armor or anything. I'm just talking your day-to-day shit, put it on, do 20 pushups and you can have a thousand bucks and they wouldn't be able to do 10 pushups. It's, you know, it just, it's just the way it is. And those are the guys that I think, you know, are, you know, not quite ready for the job, but they're going to keep doing it and no one's going to hold them accountable, which is unfortunate, but it is what it is. No, I agree completely. Well, I want to steer towards your timeline because you have a very interesting, you know, uh, story yourself. And you mentioned about pledging an oath several times. So let's start at the very, very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, let's see. Uh, I was born here in a town outside of Boise. It was called Nampa. Um so I'm a native Idahoan here. Um, growing up, uh, we had a dairy farm when I was really little. And I, I, I don't really recall, but I know that my biological dad, my birth dad, left when I was probably two and left my, mo- my mother and my sister and I uh, we moved to Portland as I, as I talk shit about Portland, but, um, yeah, we moved there when I was little, actually, uh, uh, God, it was, it was pretty rough. I didn't know it was rough. You know, it was just my sister, my mother and I, but we were little lived in a suburb of Portland called Beaverton. And it was in some ghetto apartments for a few years. Um, ended up, uh, my parents, well, my, my mother and my, who ended up marrying my stepfather and he, uh, raised me from when I was a little boy till now. And, uh, growing up, it was just a total, just a blue collar family. I mean, we worked, my dad drove a truck his whole life. Uh, his family did. My mother sold <laughs> farm implements. If you can, I mean, it was just kind of the way it was. And it was either you work or you 
I mean, I worked from day one. And uh, so my upbringing, my sister is a couple years older than me. Uh, she lives in New York and runs as a, I don't know, runs a big hospital network back there. And, uh, but as far as, uh, growing up, it was pretty straightforward. It was all about, uh, you know, really the family. And even though we didn't have a, a ton of money, you know, or anything like that, it was still a, a lot of athletics and sports. And I played a lot of sports and, uh, but my parents never missed a game. Uh, never, not my real dad, my stepdad, my mom and so forth we, from wrestling to, you know, any kind of you know, football, the baseball, they were there every, you know, every extra penny they had, they put towards sports, which was a big influence in my life. And it's like anything else you learn about winning and losing and what it takes to, and, uh, uh, I think that helped me a lot growing up and, uh, you know, it was just, all I did was hunt, uh, fish, et cetera. And then I went into the army cause I couldn't, my parents couldn't pay for college and the, and plus I wanted to serve my country. I mean, I love my country and I wanted to, you know, do something like that. And so I joined the army and I went overseas and was stationed in Germany for a lot of years and came back and, uh, you know, they paid for my college and, uh, it was great. You know, I have no regrets. It wasn't fun all the time, but, uh, nothing hard ever is. So, uh, yeah. That's really about it. And then I ultimately got hired uh, with the sheriff's department, worked in the jail. Did that for about a year and a half and then worked with the city. And uh, I got hired with the city. And that was, here I am, 22 years later. So what role did you hold in the Army? <laughs> I carried a belt-fed machine gun and a heavy backpack. And they said, you hike over here. And I said, okay. And that was it. I mean, <laughs> with your buddies and then they, you'd load your shit up and hike over here and make sure you changed your socks and put baby powder on your feet and get your feet jacked up. And you know, that was really about it. I mean, I was in the, in the third uh, infantry division um, and I was just a machine gunner in a infantry unit and it's nothing special. Trust me. It wasn't any beat or, you know, super cool or anything like that. And by the time I, you know, had finished my obligation, you know, I thought about staying in, but ultimately I just, uh, I just, you know, I, I left and, you know, went to, went to college and, um, yeah. I'm proud. I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed what I did, but again, it's, uh, sounds weird, but, uh, you know, I have no regrets. Now what sent you into law enforcement specifically when you came back? Uh, it was really, uh, it was that lack of camaraderie. I mean, that was really the big thing. And the fact that I don't want to say I was like seeking out danger, but I, I honestly, that was part of it. I liked the danger aspect of it. Um, there's really nothing that'll get you really excited as getting in a vehicle pursuit at two in the morning with some armed robbery guys that, you know, are armed, have guns and have shot at people and you're chasing them and, you know, they're shooting at you and you're like, Holy shit, I can't believe they're paying me for this. 
that's how it starts out. You're like, you're thinking, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And then ultimately as you go, as you get older and more mature and you have kids and you start realizing, uh, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this or, or maybe I shouldn't do something as dangerous. And, but that was never me. I, I enjoyed the, the, I got involved in, I mean, I did a lot of different things. I was a canine handler. I worked undercover narcotics for eight years, nine years, um, buying guns, drugs, hookers, um, name it. Um, that was a lot of, I mean, that was a lot of fun, you know, working undercover. Um, but the tactical part of things when I was on the SWAT team was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. That, that was, if I could do that all the time, full time, you know, we're not quite big enough to do that, but it was, a, that was my favorite thing in the world was, uh, doing SWAT work. Once I got on the SWAT team, um, it was probably year four of my career, five maybe, and, uh, started off, you always start off on entry. And then I went to being a breacher, explosive breacher, mechanical breacher, you know, et cetera. And then, uh, man, I did that for 10, 12 years. And then I left that and I went over to the sniper side and I started to become a precision shooter. And then that brings us up to, uh, November, uh 11 2016 you know how i got shot so well i want to just kind of pull some things out before we get there just so people you know have an understanding of, of where you were career-wise so firstly when i worked in california i know that friends of mine that went into the law enforcement side had to spend several years in corrections before they could then be on the street so what were the pros and cons of your time in the jails before you went out you know in patrol um i actually loved it a lot of guys will say, I don't know if I'd make a career out of it, like do a 20 year bit with it. But I, I, I mean, you, the 80 County jail is where I worked and you know, it's the biggest one in the state and you know, you'd work in, it was a, the main part. We had several dorms that were open dorms where they were just sort of bunk beds and cots. They were, you know, like one or two man cells and you would be locked in this dorm with these guys for I think it was 10 hour shifts or 12 hour shifts. I can't remember, but you're in there with a hundred men, right. That have committed some pretty violent crimes. Some were maybe doing a 20 day bit for a DUI, like driving drunk or something like that. And they weren't bad guys. They just messed up. And so I learned a lot, uh, just kind of communicating. That was the biggest thing is using your, uh, your verbal skills because, you know, 100 to 120 guys can make your life miserable, not not physically, like they're going to harm you, but they can sure make your shift a long shift, you know, if, if, you, if you're that guy, if you're that, you know. So I was always fair. I was, always, I, I felt anyways, I was fair. I was firm. I learned a lot about de-escalating situation, just speaking with people as a you're trying to be a tough guy. Does that make sense? And that's, that's where I learned a lot, I think was from, you know, working in the jail and, uh, the God, that's where I learned how to cook meth, like just talking to guys and I would play it off. You know, I go, God, I'm just a, you know, a, a jail deputy. I'm not anybody, but how did you carry, how did you get caught with, 
you know, four pounds of meth. And they'd tell you the story and I'm not trying to ring them up or get them in trouble. I just wanted to learn, you know, and that's, I, in that first year and a half, it was, I, I liked, I mean, I don't want to work in a prison. I like, I don't want to work in a federal prison in high desert or, you know, any of the, the big Beaumont. Um, I mean, there's so many federal prisons, state prisons. That's not my thing. I, I like, I, I just couldn't do it forever, but it was a good start for me. And I, I really, I mean, I look back on it now and I like working in the close custody unit where all the really crazy, you know, super violent guys were, you know, were housed. And, um, it was a lot of fun. I like working booking, you know, when they first come in off the street and they're either drunk or they're under the influence of drugs. And, you know, there was a lot of action that I hadn't really seen before. If action, you know, they wanted to, they were going to fight, they were going to go crazy. And that's where I really kind of learned to control your, your temper, control your, your thought process in a, in a violent scrap and not just, you know, like a high school fight that, you know, so that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I actually, I loved it. Some guys probably say they hated it, but if I had to do it for another couple of years, I probably wouldn't enjoy it as much, but it was a good stepping stone for me because when I got out and I actually was on the street, I remember going, Oh, I know that guy. I know that guy, that guy's name is this. And, you know, it helped me out a ton. Um, so I enjoyed it. So with working in narcotics, something I always pose to anyone that comes on the show with this from law enforcement, I got to see what was in my opinion, you know, the epic failure of prohibition and all the, the overdoses and the gang violence and all the kind of ripple effect that we've seen. Um, and then more recently seeing how men and women who serve their own community or serve this country have to go overseas because of our prohibition laws to get some of the treatments that are helping them, whether it's psilocybin, ibogaine, et cetera. With that time that you spent in narcotics, with the perspective that you have now looking back, what is your um, kind of opinion is the wrong word, but your lens on the prohibition laws and, and the possibility of of changing some of those to take the addicts, not not the smugglers, not the sellers, um, but the addicts away from the uh, you know the underworld and putting them back into the the wellness of, of the excuse me the the healthcare world. Well, when I I'll, when I was new, my philosophy was, oh, they're committing a crime. They're they've got a you know heroin, meth, whatever. They need to be in jail, et cetera, et cetera. But as I progressed, when I was in uniform, I would arrest the same people, right? And so I, at first, you know, I just thought, well, shit, her you know, heroin or, or, I mean, name whatever drug, I don't care. Uh, it's illegal. Um, you can't do it. My job is to arrest people that do do it. And then as I got, as, again, as I progressed, I started seeing, you know, this war on drugs is a complete failure. I mean, it's an epic failure. I don't know how many trillions of dollars we've spent on it and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And there's other reasons. And I mean, we can talk about it. If you want my opinion now, the way things are going on the Southern border and um, you know, anybody that's ever worked narcotics, especially a, 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 a dedicated narcotics unit not like a street crimes unit or things like that i'm talking where you're doing long-term covert 
drug cases where you're the undercover or the case agent, I mean, you can take off shit. I, I just read an article. They took off some DEA just took off a hundred and something pounds of fentanyl, which my God, I mean, I could kill millions of people. And you know, those, those are good. Those are good, uh, seizures, but, um, all in all, you just, it just never stops. And that's the thing where I found is it, you can't say no, we're, we're going to legalize it. And when I mean legalize it, I'm saying drugs in general. I don't think that's the right way. But what I did learn is that if you could, if the government and by government, I mean, local and federal and state and municipalities, if they, if they would spend more time in rehabilitation programs than jail, although jail is a very profitable business. So it's tough to get guys out of that. I mean, people make a lot of money from prisons. That's just the way it is. Whether you have a company that builds mattresses for prisons or the company that brings food in for the inmate, but whatever it is that people make money from people being incarcerated, but no, not a lot of people make money from, stopping people from being opiate addicts and that's the and you can look at when it started i i remember when i first started working undercover narcotics the big thing was oxys and you talk to any dope cop in the world and it actually in florida where you live with the pain clinics and the pain yep yeah started there where you could go guys would come from west virginia or kentucky or ohio or whatever drive to florida and go to 27 different you know, pain clinics and get scripts for oxys. And every heroin case I ever did, I would ask these guys, I'm like, tell me the first time you smoked or snorted an oxy. And it started with big pharma. And that's, that's really how it went down. And it was all to make money. It wasn't to help people. It was a lie. And it's been exposed time and time again. It was a huge lie that they spread. And I, you know, being a cop, they say, do this. I say, absolutely and um I, I guess i you know to get back to your your question you're talking about you know what do i think about it and what do i think about working narcotics and stuff and i just think that we're doing a tremendous disservice to i mean you want to blow up about covid and some people getting sick and this and that but but nobody wants to talk about the amount of drugs that are being smuggled across the border right now through Mexico. And that's the majority of it. If, if anybody tells you that drugs don't come from Mexico, that's a complete bullshit lie because I never did a case. And we're talking Idaho. I'm not talking, you know, Southern California to Arizona to Phoenix. I'm not talking huge cities. I mean, Boise's 200 and whatever, 60,000 people, but the Valley where, you know, all the cities are, it's a million people, maybe over a million people. But every, every big case that we did was Mexican nationals. It just, that's when we started getting into kilo quantity, pound quantity of meth and heroin, there was not one white dude anywhere. And so when you get up to a certain quantity, like I said, that's just where it comes from because they have all the, the smuggling routes already established from the eighties when cocaine was big, you know, they brought it up through Mexico. It's been this way for, 40, 50, 60, I don't know how many years. 
and they're not dumb. I mean, there's so much money involved in it, so they're going to continue to do it. And I guess to answer your question, you know, do I think that <laughs> the war on drugs is a complete failure? Yes. We're not getting any headway. We have a government that is not even recognizing the amount of overdose deaths. We have cops now. It used to be just paramedics. And then it went to paramedics and fire in Boise. And then now it's police, fire, paramedics that carry Narcan in their patrol bag with them. And I talk to guys now that are, I mean, they do it like once or twice a week. They save somebody's life in Boise from a opiate, from a fentanyl overdose now because they call them pressers, you know, pills, uh, fentanyl pills to powdered fentanyl to name it. And they mix it with cocaine and mix it with heroin. They're not even doing heroin. It, you, like, you, you can't even do a weed case or marijuana case in Boise because everybody's so busy and we're so understaffed as well, but so busy with fentanyl. That's all anybody, any of the dope guys in Boise are messing with now is fentanyl and people are dying left and right and left and right. And, it's like nobody seems to care, but I've sat at a lot of kitchen tables with grieving families of somebody, their 19, 18, 17 year old daughter has snorted some Coke or took a pill or did something at a party and it had fentanyl in it and they died in, you know, 10 minutes. And so it, it's pretty rough. I mean, I, I, I don't get it. I really don't. I don't know why they, they don't, I mean, you're, you work, you, you guys do EMS, correct? Yeah, I was a firefighter and a paramedic, so I saw it. I mean, I pushed so much Narcan in my career. How many have you done? Uh, I lost count. I mean, I got really good at what they call EJs, where you put the needle in the neck because so many of the people that ran on their, their veins in their arms were so scarred from overuse that, yeah, I mean, I got really good, which is normally like a more of a trauma maneuver. But yeah, we had so much addiction in our first year that you had to be able to put IVs in other places than we normally use because that was how much it was being abused. But you're right. I mean, when you look at it in, as a as a firefighter EMS, I mean, do, don't you get kind of tired of it after a while? Well, that's that's what really made me start asking the question. I got when I really started putting that out there, and I got some some pushback from you know just comments online and stuff. But I got a very unique lens. My mum and my brother moved to Portugal about 20 years ago, and I've told this story a lot, so I apologize to people who have heard it. But I think it's it explains it. In the year 2000, they had a horrendous opioid epidemic. They had a, a war in one of the African nations that they had colonized. And then when the soldiers came back, there was, you know, this, they, they started taking it there. They brought it back here or to, to Portugal and they tried our model and it didn't work. And so a group of politicians and doctors from left and right all got together and said, this isn't working. And I sat down with the guy who spearheaded this whole thing, who was uh, one of their, you know, their doctors that did it. Um, and they said, let's try something else. And so just like you said, they took the money that they were using on quote unquote fighting drugs. And if right. you got pulled over with a, with a personal use, not a smuggler's use or a seller's use, you got funneled into an interview and you were just educated on all the tools that were available to you for you to start, over, you know, addressing your addiction. You weren't even forced into it. And what happened is the moment that fear of arrest was removed, 
they saw all these addicts come out the woodwork looking for help, but they'd been hiding because they were going to be arrested before. There was a job creation element tied in. So they would actually um, give employers incentives to employ recovering addicts to get them back on their feet. It was absolutely amazing. Within less than 10 years, they had reversed. And people misunderstand. You don't go to a store in Portugal and buy meth. You just don't go to jail if you use meth. And if you do, if you're an addict that can't kick a certain thing, there are places you go where you can safely take whatever it is so you don't overdose and then you go about your day. So it is such a progressive system. And when I sat down with him and saw this in, you know, with my own eyes in Lisbon, that's when I was like, well, shit, I've been a firefighter paramedic all this time. All I do is pull yellow sheets over people. This has to change. Yeah, you're, you absolutely nailed it. I'm not a, a huge advocate and supporter of handing out needle kits and things like that. Um, I think that has its own problems. Um, but I do, and I know in Boise, we tried it with some of our uh, transients that had alcohol problems where it was, uh, you know, instead of going to jail, we're going to send you to rehab, but you have to accept treatment. You know, that kind of, it's basically the same thing, but it wasn't drugs. It was alcohol. And uh, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, I, 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 when's the last time you turn on the TV and you heard anybody in this country talk about the number of fentanyl overdose deaths we've had. I can't, I, I can't even tell you, but yet you have one guy that dies at the hands of a cop who wasn't trying to be dirty or whatever. And it, it, it'll burn an entire city to the ground. And I just, I, I never quite could square it. I, I can't square that up for me. It, it's always been a struggle for me. Well, I appreciate your perspective because I think that's you are the 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 most powerful voice when it comes to this issue. Because I've had many people on here like yourself who spent a whole career enforcing these very things. And so for someone like yourself to go, you know what, this isn't working, I think, you know, it takes a lot of courage. And I, I admire the people that that can take a step back, even though that was ingrained from the beginning. And I agree with you completely. Like, I mean, you look at just obesity, forget even drugs, obesity in general, you know, I mean, that was that was heresy to talk about underlying health conditions during covid and the moment that's kind of you know fitted away where's the where's the obesity epidemic conversation where's the let's put pe back in schools let's actually put real food in the school canteens let's educate our kids on how to move and how to how to eat yeah let's take our first responders and let's have physical fitness standards through their entire career where they have to be fit and they have to pass a certain requirement yeah i'm i'm with you on that it's that's interesting. I've, I've talked to a lot of guys and a lot of guys just kind of depress it in terms of they go, that's their decision. You know, you can be pretty cold hearted about it, but not everybody that is, I, and I can tell you right now, when I got shot, I had a informant. I'm not going to say her name or even her street name, but I probably, had seen her get arrested and sent to prison. I know for a fact twice. And on the third one, it was finally like, I was like, Hey, you girl, you're going to go to prison for whatever, eight, nine, ten 10 years. 
unless you do this for me. And I, I actually fought for her pretty hard because I had some faith in her. And long story short, she ultimately got clean, started her own business, um, still owns the business. And when I came back from rehab in Denver after being shot, physical rehab, not drug rehab, and uh, uh, I'll be damned, but there she was at the airport. And she had a big sign that said, we love you, Kevin. And she was holding it with her partner. And she's like, you know, and the, to this day, and this was, God damn, 13 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, I get a Christmas card. Hey, you saved my life. I appreciate it. If you hadn't had faith in me, you know, I'd either be dead or in prison right now. And it really, it just takes, not everybody's going to, not everybody's going to, you know, succeed. I, I'm realistic enough to understand that, but I was really proud of her and I was really proud, you know, of, of what I was able to do to help her and to get clean. And, and that's just one person. I mean, I'm, I was one dope cop. She was one, you know, informant and you get burned 99% of the time by your informants. That's just the way it is. But I like the fact that she was able to get clean and, uh, and, and they, her and her partner have a son now. And, you know, like I said, they're, have their own coffee shop slash restaurant, whatever in the, in a town nearby. And it was, uh, it was pretty awesome. And so I'm, I'm really proud of her and, you know, about every six months I'll shoot her a text and she's still grinding, man, doing the right thing. And, and I think, I think it's possible. It's a, it's a tough thing, but you, again, get going back to being humble as a politician and as a, law enforcement you have to surrender your ego to a certain respect and be realistic about what what's really going on and try to do the right thing and that's that's what i like about it well i'm so glad you told that story that has you know so much weight when you talk about spending so long in the narcotics unit and to be able to have that kindness and compassion I always told that in my career you know you we run on, on a lot of calls that really aren't emergencies but then when we also are really the the front line for our homeless population a lot of the you know the the men and women that are working the streets you know i mean these 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 uh groups that really have been forgotten by everyone else and you know you never know even if you're just at a red light and someone's you know begging for change who knows maybe a dollar and, and, a, and a smile may for that one person be that straw that breaks the camel's back you know but the moment we get compassion fatigue and we turn into two-dimensional assholes wearing a uniform then you know you you're never ever going to have that potential to connect with another human being well it's easy to do that and i've done that i mean honestly there's a difference in my my mind how what you can call them whatever you want uh houseless homeless transients urban adventurers i mean i don't give a shit we call them you know everything there's a certain element that i don't have sympathy for and they're usually the 18 to 23 year old homeless person who is running a iphone 12 and you know is addicted to drugs and all that kind of stuff and 
they're out, you know, getting money from people and clothes. And if you, sorry, I get these nerve spasms from, give me a second here. Ah, I'm going to give you a tip. Don't get shot. Number one. Ah, number two. Ah, don't get shot in the, the spine. And don't, I still have a bolt bullet in my T11 vertebrae that causes me a lot of grief like this. And it takes about a minute and it hurts. Um, but anyways, yeah, there, uh, uh, you, you see a lot of damage done, you know, to community that were amazing at one point. There's answers to the, the, the solution, but you, you honestly, in my opinion you have to let the police do their jobs you have to let fire do their jobs and uh you have to have an administration that isn't or a city administration that uh that understands i mean there's there's good and bad to everything but uh, you know going I, I can only speak on the drug part of things i don't want you know a city that we can't work our way out of a, a homeless problem. We can't spend our way out of it. There's other answers to it, but uh, that seems to be what I, mean, I know for a fact Boise is going through right now. And it's a, uh, it's huge growing pains. Um, but homelessness and, uh, and drug addiction are really a hand in hand. And if you can defeat, one mostly the addiction part of it i think you can solve a lot of the other problems so i agree 100 percent. well your nervous system was obviously cueing us to get to november 11th 2016 so <laughs> so uh walk me through the beginning of the shift and then you know i'll give you the mic for for wherever you want to go from there yeah what what had happened is i had just left narcotics I was done. I had done a two-year case that involved uh, some motorcycle clubs that were moving into the area, and it was a really a two and a half. It was a two and a half year case I did as an undercover for the gang unit. And, anyways, I I finally some shit went down, and I I just you know as a single father of two daughters. I was doing a, them a big disservice and I finally realized it. I left and I just wanted to be a cop again. And by cop, I mean, I just wanted to help people. I mean, that's really why I became this became a cop and I wanted to be back in uniform and, and just kind of have a normal life, I guess. And I would, I had done that. I worked a day shift, which I'd never worked in my entire career. I'd never worked a day shift. And I had just started transitioning into that. It was with a, a senior officers, guys that were actually my training officers. I had a lot of fun. Um, there was no egos. There's no guys were just, they worked hard. I liked it. And then on November, let's see, 11th and on November 9th of 2016, you know, we were talking about, uh, um, well, you talk about money and stuff in the prison system. We've already talked about that, but 
the state of Idaho and sort of California, they came up with what's called the um, Justice Reinvestment Initiative (JRI), where the prison, state of Idaho Department of Idaho Department of Corrections, could save money by doing different things, basically letting guys out early. There's one guy, and uh, his name was Marco Romero, Hispanic gang member. Um, started out as a prison gang, but it, if you know anything about, and to the listeners, if you're a cop, you know immediately when you say you have northern Mexicans, southern southerners, uh, you know, from Fresno. There's all there's different sets of Hispanic gang members. He was a Southside guy, had been to prison a lot, a lot of violent crimes, but he got sent back. Um, and I'm going to really kind of pare this down because, you know, I could get into the weeds on this, but ultimately they let him out. He wasn't supposed to get out until 2026. So this was, he got out 10 years early. Um, shortly after getting out, after doing a 90 day, and, and I'm not talking, he went back for 10 years. He went back for like 90 days. They decided to let him out because he was, it was on a nonviolent arrest like a some fraud or check fraud or some stupid something stupid and he he thought some people his family members or his associates had snitched on him and that's what got him sent back and they were at a house party and at some point they were sitting around a kitchen table and i'm sure the topic was brought up they started chipping chirping back and forth he pulls his gun out bang, 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 and just starts unloading on everybody that's at this house party. And they're all gang members and associates. And he, he shot a girl, paralyzed her, shot another guy in the leg, shot another guy. I don't know what happened to him, to be honest with you. But it was a pretty violent shoot. I mean, anytime, and it's a suburb of Boise called Meridian. And so everybody knew who the suspect was because they, they all knew him. Um, so everybody was looking for him. The next day on the 10th of November, an 89-year-old lady was coming out of her no-shit water aerobics class, and he puts a gun to her head and steals her car and carjacks her. So now he's got a stolen car. We know he's armed. And... The next day on the 11th was Veterans Day, which is a holiday. And I don't know how the fire department works in Florida, but I mean, typically in police work, you get a number of paid holidays on this particular day is one of our paid holidays. And they will take everybody that's not in patrol from all the detectives to everybody and make them take the day off so they don't have to pay them. Does that make sense? So you run on holidays, you run absolute minimum manpower. So on that day in the city, we're running two overlapping patrol teams. And, but they were all at minimums. One of our guys who was in one of our detectives was at a stoplight and he looked over and he saw the stolen car and the, and he recognized Romero as the shooter from Meridian a couple days ago. And he goes, holy shit. 
So he gets on the phone and that's what really kicked it off is he, he tried to follow him in his own, you know, personal vehicle with no radio and, you know, something, but he's talking to dispatch and, you know, there's always confusion that's, you know, he's like, I'm going West here, but, and they're trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And the guy, the officer, the detective gets burned. He, and the guy takes off. We get in a huge pursuit with him. One of our marked units finds him. And, uh, I mean, he's like crashing through fences and there's no, he's not going to pull over. So every cop in town that's not on something is now sort of converging into this area. Um, I guess they found that, well, they found his car in a neighborhood in an area called the Boise bench and it's a older neighborhood kind of, kind of sketchy, uh, been there since the thirties, forties, older houses and stuff. And, uh, ultimately a two man car is coming down the street. They found the car abandoned. So they know he's on foot somewhere in this neighborhood and they see Romero walking out of a driveway with his up with a hoodie and the hood up and they go shit man something's up and and this is 1 30 in the afternoon okay so it's not dark it's I mean it's a beautiful day I remember it was probably 70 degrees in November beautiful day not a cloud in the sky and they see him and he turns and starts walking towards the patrol car and I think he was going to shoot the officer who was driving it, but they both jumped out at the same time and the doors flow open, flew open. And Romero sees that now he's outgunned. And so being the coward that he is, he's not going to go, you know, toe to toe, two on one, whatever. He turns and runs back down the driveway. So the one passenger jumps out and kind of holds that position while the other the driver of the, the car, the police car runs to the end of the block, sees him jumping some fences. Again, long story short, we get him pinned down into this one block area, nine houses, nine or 10 houses, uh, get a good perimeter set up. Uh, man, they call immediately activate the, the, our SWAT team. We, everybody's showing up and then it's, and I got to back up just a hair because what had happened is a few years prior to that, probably three or four years prior to that, um, I had kind of had a belly full. I was getting tired of doing entry work and I wanted to do something new and learn a new skill set. And so there was an opening on our sniper team. So we have entry, which is 14 guys, sergeant, lieutenant, et cetera, armored vehicles, um, breachers, all those guys, you know, that do all the, high risk entries and hostage rescues and shit like that. Um, we had four snipers, a sergeant and a Lieutenant over the sniper team. I had gone over there because it was really a relatively coveted position as you're getting older. And, uh, I, I really loved it. It was a new skill set. I was having a great time, but on this day, because it was a holiday, we were so short they, we had a couple snipers that had worked on entry. And I remember our team, the team leader on entry had come to me and he says, I want you to be the point guy on this. And it, because I had been doing it for 17 years. And so it wasn't anything new. And so I said, absolutely, let's go do this. And I, I'll never, I just, 
I remember standing under this carport and I was waiting for some of the guys to show up. And I looked at my friend who was a purple heart Marine and Fallujah. And I mean, guys a stud. And I looked at him, I'm like, shit, we're the only two vets that are going to be here today. I think I said, this is going to be a crazy day. And we're kind of, you know, half trying to make jokes and, but we knew what was coming. We we're going to get in a shooting with this guy. There's no way that we're not. And so everybody gets there. We get our plan set up in the plan. Essentially it's no different than across the country. We're going to do, we're going to start with the last spot. We know where the guy was. We had, I think four or five patrol dogs. We have one dog that we used on our SWAT team specifically. His name is Jardo. Cause he was a hard biting, very good dog, Belgian Malinois people listening, know exactly what I'm talking about. And we're going to search behind the dog. We put him in the backyard, let him run around, sniff sheds under cars, whatever. And hopefully find the guy and pin him down. And then we're going to go in and, you know, take him into custody is the perfect way. This is going to end with no violence or anything. And so, we search the first yard, the second yard, and then ultimately uh, we get to the third and we had kind of come to this position where a couple of the snipers that were there had either seen or heard some movement through a, an old metal shed. Bottom line is we had really felt that we were getting to where we were. I mean, we were, we were kind of closing the, you know, the, the, the we're, we're, we're getting closer to him and we had kind of we really felt that this yard based on all of our active intel that we had and everything that was going on he was going to be in this yard and so again plan was boom open the side gate jardo's going to go in we'll see if he makes contact with the guy and it, it's hard to explain without actually seeing it but if you know what wing fencing is, right, you look at a house and you have fences on the side of the house and there's a gate usually on one or two sides and that allows you access into the backyard. Well, we went along the side of the house and Chris Davis, who was covering me, he's got his AR out and he's, he's up on his toes and he's, he's kind of trying to look over the fence and I'm, completely hands-free because I'm dicking with this gate that's got a lock on it or why I can remember. And I'm trying to get the gate open so the dog can go in and we're all kind of stacked up in the driveway and Chris and I are forward. And I had moved one of these uh, plastic trash cans, the big ones with the wheels on and the handles. I don't know if you have them in Florida, but we have them here. And I moved one of the trash cans and I was messing with the gate. And I looked down on my right and there's a little teeny, sort of alcove really weird the way it was set up and it was really shady. And so I didn't see him, but he was crouched down behind the second trash can. And I mean, shit, James, I, I want to say you could barely be shoulder to shoulder in this very confined area. And I looked down and he was squatted down on his heels and he had his gun up uh, uh, and it, and it happens this isn't my first rodeo as they say in Idaho, but if anybody's ever been in a shooting, the first thing they say is 
it happens that fast. Like I can't believe how fast it, you know, it popped off, how fast it happened. And that's kind of how I looked down and I saw him and he was staring over the barrel of the gun at me. And I was only maybe three feet away. I mean, I was like, I mean, I'm close and I, I, I don't have a gun. I have nothing. And I go, shit, he's going to shoot me. And again, I knew I just go, just don't shoot me in the head, which might've been better because it would have probably bounced off because I have such a hard head. But I ultimately, I saw it and I go, I, I need to move somehow. Like, even if it's a step, I have to move a little bit. So maybe the first shot will miss or hit my body armor or something. And is it just as I kind of, I don't know if I turned or I took a step to the left or something. And he, I had turned a hair and I'm trying to reach down. I was going to grab my pistol. because I got my AR slung and it just, it's habit. I was going, I think I was going for my gun, my pistol. And it just felt like somebody hit me in the back with a, like a sledgehammer. It was the impact and the velocity was so hard that, and then everything to shut off. And what had happened was the first round that he, he hit me with hit me in the upper left ass cheek. And it went up at an upper trajectory based on where he was crouched down. And it went through and just, blew up my lower left back. And that's where I get the nerve pains from is not necessarily from the bullet being in my vertebrae, but from, um, all the nerves and the little bones that come out of the side of your spine. And, you know, you have that kinetic energy. And when that, and it was only a nine millimeter round, it was a jack of the bullet. It wasn't anything high speed, but it went up and that sort of, you know, if you've seen blessed ballistic gelatin get hit, it expanded and closed. And I went, I fell face down and I smashed my head, my forehead on the asphalt or the, the concrete. And then I thought, and then, and then I was pissed, right? I was mad because I was going to, guy shot me and I wanted to kill him. And that I just, in my mind, and I tell the story and I don't, your brain is a funny thing, but I wanted to stab him. I didn't want to shoot him. I don't know why, but I have a little small, I mean, it's nothing Rambo ish, but it's just a small little four inch fixed blade knife. I used to cut things if you're out on a, you know, call out or something. And I was trying to reach for that. And I, but there was this so much gunfire and they were shooting over me and he was, and I didn't know it cause I couldn't feel it, but he was continuing to shoot me. And ultimately he shot me in my right femur and right in the middle of my right thigh, blew up my femur. I have a big rod that goes up to my hip from my knee shot me in my below my lower left leg in the shin and blew a big hole through my, I mean, it looked like a, you could drop a golf ball through the hole um shot me in the stomach which almost killed me hit a big artery in my stomach so i was bleeding out and all this stuff was underneath my vest it was really weird how that happened but um where else did he shoot me my left hip uh i think that's it anyways uh just like in training everything's always you know you go back to your training and we do a lot of officer rescue training where 
if you're in a hallway and a operator goes down, you step over him, continue to fight, you know, stay in the fight, drag him back, you know, and that's basically what these guys did. Chris did a hell of a job. Oh, and then Chris got, there's a guy was standing up from behind the trash can Romero. He was shooting me and then Jardo or canine came in and bit, bit him. And he shot Jardo who came off the ball. He shot him in his hip and, Chris was shooting through the trash can with his AR, but the bullets weren't going through and they were disintegrating. And a couple of them hit him in the torso, but uh, Chris got shot in the thigh, came out his left ass cheek. He was kind of hopping around at this point, I guess. And the other guys were just, it was just a gunfight. You know, they were only 15 feet away and uh, shot him in the face a couple times killed him um dragged me they were dragging me back behind a car and thank god we had our tack med there and they came and uh you know i i they're they were kind of a trendy thing for a while but now guys are seeing the importance of it even patrol not just tactical guys but carrying tourniquets on your on your person and knowing how to put them on quickly and correctly uh that probably saved my life too. Cause I had a, several tourniquets on me at this point. And I started to, you know, I wasn't, I, w- I really wasn't worked up or anything. I'm trying to tell everybody to calm down. Cause I mean, there's a lot of the fire guys had run up. I mean, there's a lot of shit going on and Chris is shot. Jardo shot. I'm shot really bad. We got a dead bad guy. We got all this stuff going down all at once. And so, they just threw us in the, our Bearcat, which is our armored vehicle. And the thing that saved my life was we were a mile from a trauma hospital. If I'd have been further either way, like honestly, another mile to the east, I would have died. I was bleeding out that bad. My stomach was just, they were cutting everything off. And we get there, they threw me in, we went barreling into the trauma room and i said chris are you good and he said i'm good and then i woke up you know like 10 days later and they had uh, tried to fix my left leg or keep it stable they cut my stomach open the entire length of it they couldn't get the bleeding stop they had to put some contrast in and then run a hot wire through my femoral artery and used a hot coil to they had to figure out where the blood was or where the bleed was uh shit did that um which ultimately caused me to have a colostomy bag um my bladder i got shot in the bladder lost a bunch of my intestines and my colon um yeah it's been pretty rough that that particular injury but ultimately um i kind of had a bad infection in my stomach that almost killed me too that was really rough painful and then once i started kind of coming you know about a month later i started coming out of uh, a lot of the injuries i had to have my left leg amputated above the knee they couldn't get the you know my leg i was getting to word uh when you get like a blood infection sepsis is that right does that right yes that's right okay i i was just getting an infection and they said either cut it off or there's a chance it's going to kill you. And I said, well, I can't, 
walk on the fucker. So cut it off and they cut it off. And, uh, I ultimately ended up flying to Denver, went to Craig hospital, which was an amazing, amazing thing. And went through the, the, the physical rehab there. And then I came back and, uh, man, that's when life really got hard, believe it or not, it got really hard. And, uh, uh, I just had my other leg, which I don't know if enough I told you that, uh, I had to have my right leg amputated above the knee, uh, about a month ago because, uh, I kept, uh, it's, I just had issues with it and it kept breaking. Like if I bumped something, it would break and then, you know, on and on and on. So now I have both my legs cut off. And, uh, but when I got back, it was, uh, man, that's when the real journey starts, man. That's when the real, the real difficult part of this journey is when everything was done. I had no more surgeries and I think I'd had like 30 surgeries up to this point. And I just said, and that's when I, I went through my, I call it the, the dark days <laughs> where it was when I, when I got back and my daughters went back to school and I'm here by myself at my house. And I'm like, shit, what do I do now? You know? I was planning on trying to go back to work and it just, it, the, it was just too much. I couldn't do it. And so, uh, yeah, I went through, uh, and I'm pretty transparent about it. Sometimes it's hard to talk about it. Uh, but I decided, man, I can't live with this pain. I can't live with this. I'm not going to be an opiate addict. I know where that leads. We talked about that earlier. If I would have, they would have given me oxys hand over fist, right? If I would have just asked for them, but I know what's going to happen. I'm going to become addicted to them. I don't give a shit who you are. It's what's going to happen. And then I'm going to have problems with that. And so I just, you know, I made the decision. I'm going to end my own life at my own hand. I was going to kill myself. And I'd been to, I don't know, three, 200 suicides in my career. Who knows how many, I mean, so many, and I knew, you know, the best way to do it. I knew where I was going to do it and I knew how I was going to do it. And, uh, God damn, lo and behold, uh, whether it was fate, I don't know what it was, but I'm not kidding when I said, I mean, I, I knew like the department gave me my duty pistol back, which I don't know why they did it. It's still, I, it's in my gun safe in a evidence box. It's all rusty. It's a, cause it's, had blood and shit on it and i haven't even i looked at it once and now it's i won't even like i won't even look at it anymore i don't even want it i'm probably gonna end up giving it back here pretty quick because they can do with what they want i don't need it i have plenty and so um but i was at a we have a we had a swat competition with some neighboring agencies from out of state and we went to our range and you know, I wanted to see the fellas and, you know, and I was standing there and I, some guy just goes, Hey, do you remember me? And I look over and there's this huge guy standing next to me and he's got a beard and the, you know, hat and the, and I, every top tier operator looks the fucking same. You know, I don't care if it's dev grew any JSOC guy, they all have the beards. They all have the same hats. They all look the same. I knew. I'm like, what's this guy doing here? And he goes, it's me, Danny Nelson. And I, and I still, it didn't click. 
And he goes, don't you remember in years ago? And I want to say 20, 2003, maybe 2002. I coached, helped coach a boxing program for one of our high schools with the school resource officer. And this kid, he was, he was a kid then he was a senior. He, uh, he was, he was really tough. <laughs> he could fight, but, um, he was in that program and, uh, and then I recognized him and it really kind of was astonishing. And we got to talking and I come to find out he had, uh, he had went to UCLA and played football and did all this cool guy stuff. And then he ended up, uh, becoming an he wasn't enlisted he was an officer in the army and then he ended up uh, again I, he'll, he'll probably kill me for but i think it's the ninth special forces group he was a captain over that group and they were in uh afghanistan in 2017 and i want to say again i think it's the pekka or peka p-e-k-h-a valley pekka valley and uh this was really a ISIS stronghold in 2017 and it was, they were there with, I mean, their job was to move. And this is a massive Valley. According to that, this isn't like it takes you a day to get through it. It takes you three months to walk the length of it. And they were there just crushing ISIS, but what they didn't know, they had gone to a mosque. They had cemented over some, uh, artillery shells or explosives they were going to stay there for the night and then a couple hours later they cooked off all the bombs and hurt and killed a couple of their guys he got hurt really bad and then they got ambushed and it was this two mile escape to try to get away from these wing nuts and uh he had some a bad tbi he was at wall Reed for a long time but for some reason he happened to be there that day because a friend of that guy that was on our team had gone to school with him. And anyways, we connected and it saved my life. And I've told him this and he'll, he, he says the same thing about me, but I've not, I hadn't had anybody up to that point that had really been through several critical incidents, you know, gunfights and firefights and been wounded and, somebody that you know and he, and he was going through a lot of the same things i was going through just that i mean should he like when i first met him he couldn't drive because it would make him really nauseous and he'd have to pull over and because of his head injury and his pelvis was all fucked up and you know he's got all kinds of issues but man my phone had ring at one in the morning and it was him and we would talk for hours and uh It was just, uh, we just talk about, you know, you could be open and, you know, I didn't judge him and vice versa and I still don't. And, uh, he went through the same thing I did. Uh, you know, and, uh, anyways, so that was for some reason, he got hurt when he did. I got hurt when I did. And then, uh, you know, a year apart, but we're still really close. And I, 
I talk to him almost every day if I can. And again, that guy saved my life. And I was able to, you know, cause I went and talked to some therapists and I mean, that's a whole nother podcast. You should get into the mental aspect of this type of thing. The, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, like counselors that they made me go to didn't do shit for me. I didn't like it. I resisted it. I'm not going to go to peer counseling. I'm not going to go to this. The only thing that saved me was one guy that was my best friend that we've been best friends for 20 years and he carried me into the bear cat and I felt myself dying. I could feel it, you know, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional about this, but um, (laughs) I usually don't, but um, I just remember he was, you know, talking to me and at least I was with somebody that, you know, I loved and that, I cared a lot about and he that was a good thing for me at least then but anyways he's helped me you know his name is Brian his he's helped me a ton um but anyways yeah so that's really about it it's uh that's the the shooting in a nutshell there's a lot of shit happened after that when I was in the hospital their gang they got another shooting ended up killing another one of their guys uh that did a home invasion because he got he shot at the police uh took our bear cat they tried to but he stole the guy's car out of his garage we rammed the car in the driveway against the house with our bear cat hit a grenade with him and a gun they shot him killed him killed another guy that was part of their gang and then I think they figured out that they weren't going to win. And so they, they stopped trying to kill the police. And after we were like three and zero on those guys. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of shit that went down in the year following my shooting. And, uh, I was in the hospital the vast majority of the time, but there, like, you know, there was a lot of shit that went down. So anyways, uh, sorry. No, well, like don't I said, to... don't 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 say sorry. I mean, these are these are the things that people need to hear, and I want to, you know, again, pull some things out of this incredible story that you told. But let's, you know, contrasting the defund the police, all this movement. This is the reality of the risk that you and your brothers and sisters take. That mine, you know, mine in the fire service and EMS is that this is the potential. And then when we're talking about, you know, Ovaldi, this is this is you know, the the worst case scenario, this or death. But what really is so, and I just resonate so deeply, is we always think when someone gets shot, when someone has an injury and you know, they fall through a roof in a fire or they get burned or whatever, that it's the physical journey. But more often than not, it's the mental journey. And when I and I'm just kind of picking things from from what you've told me this last hour and a half, you know, you've got all the way back to childhood. You know, you you had an amazing father who raised you from you know when you were young onwards but there's still that subconscious element of why didn't that original guy stay around you know then you've got um you know the military service and now you, you're talking about going to days finally after your whole career so you're doing and seeing all these things you've got the sleep deprivation you, you're a single dad so you've got a divorce and then you get to this point so it's an absolute perfect storm and the very identity the very thing that you adored 
was then stripped from you, not only physically, but your ability to function in that position anymore. So, I mean, yes, as you said, I mean, there's the horrendous physical issues that are going to change the way that you live your life from here on onwards. But more often than not, when I hear these these powerful stories, it's, it's the mental journey and, and who shows up is the most important part of this conversation because the ones that people showed up for, I get to speak to on this podcast and the ones that maybe didn't, we'll never know. Yeah, it's true. I think uh, I've said this so many times. I'm just going to grab something to drink. I'm moving through the house <laughs> while still trying to see you. But uh, um, the hardest thing that's been for me has is your 100% ride has been the, the mental aspect of it. And uh, I said, I said, I don't care that I'm paralyzed. I don't care that I'm in a wheelchair. I mean, I really don't. It is what it is at this point. It's been five years, four years, whatever. And I just... Uh, Um, sorry, give me a second. No, take your time, mate. I'm sorry that you're going through that. It happens every day. And it's usually like when I get stressed or something or like this fires it up a lot more, but, um, yeah, it's not, it's not the, uh, it's not the being in the wheelchair. It's not the getting my legs amputated. It's not any of that. I just struggle with, you know, it hurt my daughters. Like th this doesn't, this probably won't make any sense to you. And I've never told anybody that it's made sense to, but the biggest thing that I struggle with mentally now is I have, a, I'm just racked with a tremendous amount of guilt over the way that I made other people feel. And by other people, I mean my parents, you know, who are getting older, um, my daughters. I went from, you know, six foot, 220, SWAT guy, jujitsu lover, let's go fight, let's spar, let's, you know, all that shit. I ate it up, put mustard on it. I ate it with a spoon. I loved it. And I, and I can't do any of that anymore, but I feel guilty about the suffering and pain and grief that I put my loved ones through the guys I work with, the guys on my team, you know, that thought I was dead, that saw me get shot, just crumble, you know, from 10 feet away. And that's what I've, I mean, I, I don't know if that makes sense. I always ask people if I talk about that particular subject, I don't talk about it a lot, but that's what really bothers me is how I've, I've hurt other people, my actions and I didn't make bad decisions. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like I was John Wayne out, you know, with two six guns, just fucking <laughs> on a horse, you know, trying to be a cool guy. It, I, I do the same exact thing over again. It's not that. It's just that they walked into the, I mean, I'm, I'm in a coma for over almost two weeks. And, you know, I've got middle school daughters that it's a very fragile time in their life, you know, and you want to be, a protector and be there for them. And they see me and I'm almost dead. And I just, to this day, that's a, I mean, that bothers me a lot and I can't get through it. That's the one thing I really can't work through is that for some reason, I don't know. 
who knows? Well, it makes sense to me perfectly, but in a you know a far less acute way than than you experience. But I going through divorce, it was through infidelity from you know his mother. Um, and I'm not saying that to, to throw shit. It's just to explain the situation. So it wasn't, you know, that I was doing anything, um, you know, untoward, but I grieved my son. I grieved the impact that the divorce would have on him. And like you, I did, you know, what I would, uh, what I'd like to think was most things right, not everything, but I did most things right and invested in a marriage. And then same with you. I mean, you took your job seriously, you did your weapons training, you did jujitsu and your strength and conditioning. Everything that you could control, you tried to. But as a paramedic, the number of people that I did everything right on that still died, and that was me, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, everyone that went into a cardiac arrest never came back when I was there, EMT slash medic. And that's just, you know, that's just the way it was. But there was a, there's a kind of guilt and a shame attached to that. So, you know, I understand it because you tried to control everything and in the back of your mind, it wasn't enough. And therefore it put your loved ones through what it was. Now, the reality is, as you said, you tried to control everything, you know, so you did as much as you could. You know, as you said, with the homelessness and the addiction problem, you can't save everyone. But that doesn't mean that you don't try at all. You do as much as you can. So I understand completely what you're saying. You know, you don't want to bring any fucking pain at all to the people you love. And these situations did. And there's where the shame comes from. Well, and it's it's exactly right. Because I did it when I was working narcotics. I'd be driving down the road and a guy that I'm buying huge amounts of dope from like my daughters are in the car with me and it's my day off, you know? And I'm like, Hey, you know, what's up Carlos? And he's like, Hey, what's up Kevin? And you know, like I'm, I'm setting up a dope deal and I've got a, you know, a six and an eight year old girl in the car with me and they would, would hang up and they're like, who is that? You know? And I go, it's just a guy I work with. And, you know, and I'm like, later, I'm like, why would I do that to my daughters? You know, I, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's such a hard job. And that's, you know, going back to the, you talk about defunding the police and all that stuff. And, and then that's why I get so fucking mad about Uvalde and those cowards that stood there in the hallway is because there's so many good men and women that would have gone in there and may have been shot and may have lost their lives. But that's what you signed your, that's why you fucking held your hand up like this. And they say, Kevin Holtry, do you swear to uphold the United States Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic? And you know what you say? Absolutely. Of course I will. That's what I, that's what I, that's who I am. That's what I want to do. And then I look back at it and it's like, damn, man, <laughs> that didn't really turn out like I thought it was going to. And uh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard, man. It's, it's the mental aspect. Like you said, it's, it's not the physical. Yeah. It sucks when you're, you put your turnouts on and you're in Florida and it's what a 90% humidity and you're at a structure fire and you're standing there about to have heat stroke. Yeah. That, 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 that sucks. But all that is, is just toughness, right? You just, it's all just, you just suck it up. You deal with it. Yeah, it's discomfort, but you can, but 
everything else is all up here and in your heart. And when I see what happens to some of the, the men and women in, in this profession and God, I, I wish I could, you know, the, the girl, the, the tac med, the fire, the paramedic that helped save my life. She's a little five foot one muscle hamster, you know, and she's a stud and she just got back from a jujitsu tournament in Salt Lake, you know, she's a fighter and we, you know, I, she saved my life and I look at her, you know, and we talk and all the struggles that she goes through on the paramedic side are the same exact shit that my friends that I played hockey with on a police fire team, right? That the fire guys go through the same thing. And it's not because it's a hard job because it really isn't. It has its moments, but it's not a physically hard job for the most part, but it's a very, when you have to cut down a 13 year old girl who hung herself in her closet, her parents found her and you're the first one there, you know, and, or uh, just from the, I've seen more, I'm not, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir when I tell you this, but you've seen a lot of violence and a lot of death and a lot of carnage in your career. That's just the way it is. And I figured out a way to suppress it throughout my career. And I could, you know, I call them, they're like little Polaroids in my brain. And I have really gory, violent, dangerous shit of murders, of people being violated, of stabbings, you know, and you just figure out a way to move, you know, take the report, call the paramedics, call fire. They do their thing. You do your thing. And then you move on. But all of a sudden, two years later, you're driving around and you go, holy shit. And something like would come at me into my memory. And I go, oh, my God, I remember that house because this happened and this happened or this intersection or whatever. And you just try to forget about it, but you'll never forget about it. And that's the one thing I've talked about is we've done a fairly decent job from the police side in, you know, how to, you know, how are you going to fight? How are you going to do this? How, you know, chop, chop, you know, slap and tickle all the cool stuff and the shooting. And, but we don't do anything about how do you protect yourself between your ears and I've been across the country and I spoke at several conferences and I, and I know we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but at the very end, Brian, my friend and I, he's a gang detective. And we would say, listen, boys and girls, we've talked about some pretty high speed stuff and you can look at all the pictures and hear the dispatch audio and you know, all that bullshit. It's cool and all, but the bottom line is none of it matters if you can't, keep your family together. None of it matters if you're, you're, uh, I've done interventions. I've seen my good friends lose their careers over pills, over booze, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we just don't do enough to recognize the, the mental problems and the emotional problems that are caused by, this type of being a first responder. And, you know, I told you, we had a guy with Boise fire. Uh, he was getting ready to retire. He had a couple weeks and the guys got up in the morning 
I don't know if they got a call. They went out there in the bay and they had a ladder truck and the guy had hung himself from the ladder truck in the bay and he was getting ready to retire, you know, and nobody knows why, you know, I don't know why I didn't know the guy, but I don't know why I think about him. It just breaks my heart that you can't, there was nothing that could be done to save his life. And he went 30 years and he didn't die from falling through a roof or, you know, that type of stuff. He died by his own hand and I get it, but yeah, we, we don't do nearly enough. And at the end of these conferences that I've spoken at, you know, you get done and you know, you go over here and people always come up and talk during the break and every single time, every single time somebody will come up and say, man, I am so glad you talked about that at the end. They don't talk about the shooting or anything like that. They'll say, sorry, it happened, whatever. But for the most part, they all, all they want to talk about is thanks for at least bringing that up and, 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 and making, bringing some, some awareness to the mental health crisis, which is first responders. So you have that, the job itself, your administration, which is kicking you in the knackers, the every, everything that's going on. And then you've got the public who's like, if a cop gets, I, I've had people tell me like, you know, on DMs and stuff, you should have been killed that day. Um, your, your injuries don't cover up your corruptness. That kind of shit. To, and I'm like, really, man, man, I never, I've never had one sustained complaint in 22 years as a cop. Well, these, and these are people that have probably never done any sort of service in their life as well. No, you see it. I mean, I just saw it the other day in, in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis. The like three-year-old kid is up with his sippy cup hitting the cops, you know. I'm like, what who who teaches your toddler to talk to the man? If I saw a fire engine or a cop car as a four-year-old, you remember that as a kid? And you you loved it. You were like, oh, I want to sit in it and I want to, you know, that's just you want to be a fireman, you want to that's how I was my whole life. And I don't understand it. I, I just don't get it. It's not. I, I, it, it just escapes me. And I, I, I really have to separate myself from those type of stories and the, you know, any kind of dialogue and things like that. Yeah. I saw the same video. It was so, it's disappointing, but the, the, I think the other side of the whole equation is the fact that that got seen by so many people. Ultimately, that's a little shit that needs to be slapped. Maybe you shouldn't be snacking around a three-year-old, but you know what I mean? But, uh, virtually or whatever you know he, he needs to be put in his place and, and re-educated because that's a horrible way to be and if he's gonna be like that what's he like to the other kids in his class well what's he gonna be like when he's 15 mm -hmm. 16 he's probably gonna be dead because his parents told he's him to be a, a little gangbanger yeah he's gonna be a gang member he's gonna be a, a bad guy it's there's nothing good that's gonna come of it he's not gonna be a well you know it's just it's not that way yeah but so but the other thing i think that the other sad thing is that should have just been some little shit that was only witnessed by the people on scene. That was it. But the damn, you know, the downside of social media, I love the fact that we can share our videos that show kindness and compassion and, and courage. Mm -hmm. But sadly, that's clickbait too. So probably millions of people saw that little shit instead of what should have been only four or five 
because he's not representing most preschoolers on the planet. Most preschoolers on the planet are exactly what you said. They're excited. They're, you know, hopefully being raised to be kind and considerate. And I think that's the other issue is all police are being tarred with the same blush. You know, all, you know, let's say even the other way around, you know, people in poorer neighborhoods are being tarred depending on their skin color or whatever mm-hmm. by, by, by the minority, by the people that are, mm-hmm. you know, subscribing to this. So it's a shame that with the Karen videos and all this stuff, that's not how people are. That little shit was, as you said, you know, being poisoned by his parents. But by his parents and by his community as a whole are doing him a disservice that his neighbors, his friends, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, but again, you go back to the pendulum, it's starting to swing a little bit and you're seeing, you know, people who have lived in an, a house for 15, you know, in Portland, I'll use Portland because it's so close to Boise. And they, I watched a story that was about a four minute long local news story where, the transients are now the drug addicts and stuff are breaking into vacant homes and just living in this living there now that houses that are up for sale and they, and now they're piling garbage in the backyards, there's syringes, there's all the problems that come with that. And they call the police and they don't have enough cops in Portland and they can't respond to, to those quality of life issues that make a community great. They just, they're just not there. They can only respond to in progress shootings and things of that nature. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's rough. Everybody I know is leaving early. And we live in a great state and a great city. And there's guys that are leaving. They're taking everything they can out of their retirement and trying to buy some points to leave two, three, four years early just to get out of the profession because they can't do it anymore. Yeah, well, I've said that even without this element, you know, you look at, let's take fire because that's the one I know the best. You know, you've got men and women working 56 hours a week and then that's before you get mandatory another shift. And it's the same thing. Like, even when we had pseudo support, you know, this is a profession that's killing you. It really is. And we adore it. That's why we sign up. But the way that these prof- the responders are being worked these days with, with the, so many of the 911 calls not being emergencies. So they're just running on things they should never be running on. Again, no proactive prevention. Um, elements to address addiction mm-hmm. and violence in some of these other areas. So I think you're seeing it in in fire and EMS as well. I mean, they're getting burnt out, especially after this last two years. So until we put the people that we call when we're having our worst fucking day as a priority in this pyramid instead of at the absolute bottom, then what what's going to happen when there's no one to call anymore? That's a good question. I don't know. Like I just said, if I if I lived in my house that I live in right now and some lady, some people moved in behind me and they were fighting and, you know, lighting fires and parking, parking motorhomes, you know, out front and running extension cords out to it. And sorry. Um, God damn. And I called the police and they said, sorry, we just don't have enough cops. I mean, I'd lose my mind. I'd go absolutely mental if there was nobody there to help you. And we all know why there isn't, but I I, I just, it blows my mind. 
Uh, it's it's you know it's a vicious circle. And we need to get people you know with the courage to to break that that cycle completely. Well, what's what's the uh, what's the first step then? I'm going to ask you. <laughs> what do you think the first step is then? I, I mean, I think As- I think you have to come to the table with all of the conversations simultaneously. So you know you you want the police to to perform at a higher level okay great then you need a fund you need to set the bar back where it needs to be you need to maintain physical and and you know uh, operational standards you have to create a work week that allows them to get rest and recovery so they can operate at the highest level and not so sleep deprived that they're cross-eyed and then you have to simultaneously have things in 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 place that will reduce the danger on the streets. So then you turn the spotlight also on the community and we put proactive measures, whether it's drug prohibition or whether it's addressing the homelessness, you know. I mean, I I always tell people this, why is there never the conversation of they don't have these issues on the streets of Reykjavik and Oslo? Mm -hmm. Why does that not fucking, you know, we're supposed to be one of the most affluent countries on the planet, yet we can't replicate well, some of these, you know, much smaller, much poorer countries are able to do. So why don't we, again, have humility and start looking at some of the, the sociological things that they have in practice there? And it won't happen overnight, but start moving the needle on what is creating addicts, homeless, prostitutes, um, you know, gangbangers of what used to be an innocent little preschooler on the streets of America by the time they turn 18. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's a lot of it is uh, the most influential. I can only speak from the police side, right? Just like you speak from a fire side, but you know, I look at uh, a lot of the more liberal from Los Angeles to San Francisco to, you know, name it, which are incredible cities at one time but they have district attorneys that are so liberal and so progressive that they don't want to have a cast. Like nobody's held accountable. That's that. I mean, that's, it comes down to this. People are not held accountable for their actions right now. And I think that's one of the biggest things is there's guys who are out committing violent crimes and they don't have to stay in jail till they see a judge. They don't have to do things like that. And, they just let them out and they immediately commit another crime and they let them out again. And I mean, there's so many problems that I see that a year and a half ago, we never saw at all. Two years ago, we never saw. And that's what I think. I think it comes down to, you know, it comes down to accountability you know, I just know that if I did something stupid when I was a kid, you know, you're talking about the kid, you know, you're the three-year-old. If you saw your four-year-old son go up to a cop and, you know, hit him like with a sippy cup and this and that, that kid would get snatched up so fast, right? And you would bring him and whatever, and you'd tell him how it's going to be. But nobody, nobody does that anymore. Nobody, not nobody, but in a lot of these places that, hate the police they hate everything they just don't want to yeah hold anybody accountable for uh really negative behavior and maybe that holding someone accountability is what we spoke about earlier is you know how do you help out with uh drug addiction and how do you help out with things like that if, if you can get people off drugs 
if we can curb the flow of fentanyl into this country and opiates and, and take that money that we spoke of earlier, instead of putting millions of dollars into people to go around and sweep up syringes and human feces on sidewalks, you know, let's come up with some programs that'll get them clean and get them off the drugs and get them off the street. And we'll see. I don't know. I don't have a lot of faith right now. I hate to say that. I don't know. No, I, don't, I think like, a lot of people don't. About it. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think a lot of people don't. And with the accountability, I mean, look at the Afghan withdrawal. Where's the accountability for that fuck up? Look at, um, God, who was that? Who was that bloody uh, pedophile that had his island? I'm blanking on his name now. Is it Epstein? Yeah. So, you know, then that whole thing, every single person that was there with him on that island, again, where's the accountability there? I'm going to throw one at you, right? Look at Boris Johnson. He just got sacked in England, right? You're British by his, the, what some of the things that he did, but he's still going to maintain his position in office, which I don't understand. You look at Hunter Biden, who's the president's son, and he's getting paid $800,000 a month by a Ukrainian oil company while he's smoking crack cocaine and banging hookers. I mean, how, where's the accountability in that? Right. Oh, exactly. And I've, I've always said this, the way that we choose our leaders is so broken because they're not leaders. And we saw that in so many countries the last two years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, I don't want to get into the politics of the, you know, the global politics or the United States or in Europe, but it's, uh, yeah, it, again, it comes down to holding people accountable. And if you're going to, if, if you're going to, talk about gun control, then why don't you talk about Hunter Biden who had a pistol that he threw in a dumpster and he was a prohibited possessor. How about charge him with the felony and hold him accountable? I, if you're going to have gun control, then just how about we, we, we prosecute and we stick to the gun laws that we have on the books right now. Maybe we'll maybe start with that and see where that goes instead of adding more and, and not holding anybody again accountable for their behavior. If, if I'm a gang member and I'm buying guns illegally from a store and I'm lying on the federal form, somebody should go to jail for that. And it should be for a period of time. You should go to prison for that. It's that serious to me. Look at Chicago, James, Chicago. They have on average, I mean, over, uh, was it father? No, 4th of July weekend. They had 50, 50 something, 57 shootings, 57 shootings in one city. And it wasn't, I mean, it's all on the West and the South side. Why are they blaming the police for that? What, I mean, it goes on and on and on, but good God. I mean, I can't imagine living in a city with shit. It would take Boise, Idaho, 20 years to reach that number of shootings, 10 years. I don't know. We usually have, fuck, I don't know, maybe four homicides a year, five a year. We usually have about three or four officer-involved shootings, you know, shit like that. Yeah, it's not, it's not a secret. It's not a mystery. Just hold people accountable, man. Absolutely. Well, I want to go to one more area before I let you go. So I know, like I've, I've, we talked about this before we we did the recording. I've had law enforcement officers on here that were hurt on the job, you know, officer-involved shootings or hit by cars. And 
their departments kind of washed their hands of them. Was you right. were telling me it was kind of the opposite with your department. So talk to me yeah. about the support you got from Boise, and also I'd love to explore some of the 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 outlets that you have now that have worked mentally and physically, whether it's the 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 sports that you do or other areas. When I got hurt, people ask me like, "What's the number one thing that helped you out?" And I've talked to other departments or people that have been hurt on the job. Again, whether you hit by a car shot, it doesn't matter. We'll just say hurt on the job. And I, I would say 80%, maybe 70% of the departments in this country, when they have somebody that gets hurt on the job, they wash their hands of them. They fire them. They let them go, whatever word you want to use. And because they don't want to pay the money for their medical costs. And that's really what it comes down to. Boise was really good to me. And the thing that I think saved me initially was that, and I, and I tell this when I go around the country, I talk about this. I said, when I got shot, we took our SWAT team and our honor guard. Okay. And these guys, men and women signed up for six hour shifts the entire time I was in the hospital initially, they would wear their class A uniforms, tie, hard badge, hard name tag, their class A. And they would work six hour shifts, 24 hours a day, every second I was in the hospital. And they would control who came and went out of the room. They would update my family as to medical needs because we have uh, the, fr- the Fraternal Order of Police, which is a national organization, and we have our, you know, the Idaho chapter. And they, the, the FOP paid for my mom and dad. They live out of town in a mountain resort town north of here. They paid for their hotel. They paid for, they bought my daughter's uh, Apple MacBooks so they could do their homework while they're in the hospital room with me. They... And these guys would stay there six hour shifts where I would wake up at two in the morning, just drenched in sweat for whether it's the drugs, the injuries, I don't know. I would have horrible nightmares. And the second I started freaking out, there was always one of those men or women there with me. And they would sit there in the room with me on six hour shifts. And if I wanted to talk, like I couldn't sleep. And I would just, I, I would just, they were there for me and I, I would be scared. I, and, and they go, Hey man, I'm here, brother. I'm right here with you. And they grab my hand and I, you know, I go, what's going on. And they would kind of tell me, and then we would sit there and laugh and tell, you know, and then we talk and that, that for whatever reason, not for whatever reason, I know exactly why, but that right there was the number one thing that the department did. And they allowed them to alter their shifts allowed them to, you know, switch their hours. Right. And it was phenomenal. That, that was the number one thing that probably saved me initially was having someone that I, you know, that I worked with in uniform in my room with me the first six, seven, eight weeks, two months, they were there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that was the biggest thing for me. 
and the department allowed him to do that. And I, and I will give him all the props in the world for that. And I thank him for that. And then the city, the, the population, all the kids, Jesus Christ, every single grade school, I mean, kids were writing me cards and I, and I read, I still have every single one of them. Some of the boys would write cards and I'm talking like second graders, little kids would write, would draw, you know, Hey, let's write a card for officer Holtree today. And they would draw a police card. The boys would draw a police card with cops shooting bad guys. And then the girls would write like the sun with daisies and sunflowers. And, you know, and the boys were always like writing violent combat. <laughs> it was the funniest thing ever. But the, the girls would write these sweet, you know, I hope you feel better. And the boys are like, yeah, we're glad you killed him. Woo. You know, and it was just, it was kind of funny, you know, how it went down, but God, the city, even today. And I, and I, I, I may have spoke to you about this earlier, but <clears throat> shit, I'll, I'll go to a restaurant and I'll take, you know, my daughter to breakfast or I'll go to lunch with some buddies or something. And then the waiter or waitress would come up and say, somebody picked up your tab, you know? And they, they're, they're, they're awesome here. And uh, there's not a lot of hatred that you see in other cities. And so I'm probably a unicorn in that regard, in terms of a department that really supported their officer. And they did do that. Um, But like I said before, the number one thing I do, and I would encourage people to mentally prepare themselves for this as you're getting closer to retirement or any time in your career, any, you need to, uh, if you leave the department, you're going to leave the department, meaning you're not the, the friendships you have, the camaraderie. That's, that's a, that's a done deal. And that's just the truth. Once you're off the Island, you're off the Island. I've probably said that whether it's fire and or police, you just don't like I have five guys out of hundreds that I've worked with that I will be in contact with. And, and that was rough for a while, but now it is, I just accept it. It is what it is. And I just accept my friendships, you know, as they come and I, you know, I adore each one as they come and I accept each one as they come. But in terms of, uh, I, I was blessed to answer the bottom line to your question, you know, you, and I know you've heard it horror stories about what departments have done to guys. I was blessed from where I worked and the, 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 the deputy chiefs, the, the officers, the, even the chief at the time who I did not like, and I still don't like our chief at the time allowed these guys to do this stuff. And that meant a lot to me. And so to answer your question, it's, you know, my, I, I, I can't, I couldn't have asked for more for my department or my city than what happened to me. I couldn't have asked for a better treatment. And I think it's so important for us to hear that, you know, whether it's Roger or Kristen or some of these great chiefs out there. And, and I got it, like I said, I got a perspective of what I consider one of the best, one of the worst. So I've seen that, that kind of gamut, but you know, as, as much as important as it is to talk about the bad ones, we need to talk about the good ones. It's not a doom and gloom podcast. It's bring solutions to problems. So, you know, hearing, 
what you went through and and you know the reality too i mean that transition out is is harsh and it really does kind of sieve out most of the people and you end up with your your nearest and dearest your your ride or die as they say yes and that's exactly what it is and just like roger i know that guy's a chief of police in pocatello which is on the absolute opposite end of the state if people don't understand idaho it's it's a long ways away and that guy still texts me to this day mostly because he's my friend but mostly because he cares about his guys and i i think he considers me as one of his soldiers if that makes sense it does completely well kevin i want to say thank you so much i want to be mindful of your time because i want you to not you know um to, to be able to move on from this so you're not getting the uh the 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 pain shooting through you like we've seen during this conversation but sorry about no no don't (laughs) pass my point though and i'm gonna leave that in i'm not gonna take that out either because this is the reality this is you know someone who signed up who who sacrificed so much you know a lot of us sadly do have divorces in our past and and we do feel guilt and shame about the impact of our service on our children but you also paid you know the the near ultimate sacrifice of of actual bodily harm as well but being so courageous telling your story especially the mental health side I know it comes at a cost of reliving that, but I also know how many people are going to be moved and, and hopefully reflect on this themselves. So I just want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show and telling your story today. Well, I know it's just, it's a Saturday. I took time away from your schedule and your family, but thanks for letting me say my piece and uh, let me just be open and honest. I appreciate what you're doing. I really do. And I think you do more work, better work doing what you're doing than you even can even come close to understanding. There's been somebody that's going to listen to this and they can get a hold of me, Kevin Holtry, H-O-L-T-R-Y. I always say not the half tree, the whole tree. And it's, you can find me on Instagram. You can hit me up. I don't care if you want to talk. I'll talk to anybody anytime, anywhere. If you're a first responder, um, hit me up on Instagram. I don't do Facebook. I don't do any of that stuff. And if you want my phone number and you're legit, um, I just talked to a guy in a, God damn, what's it called? Uh, uh, what's the forest? Uh, Newfoundland in Canada. <laughs> he got shot. <laughs> He's not a cop, but he got shot. And some guy by a guy that was trying to rob him got his leg shot off. And uh, he's 23, complete stud, absolute stud. And uh, now I have a new friend, you know, and it's like I talk to him about stuff, you know, what it's like to be, you know, paralyzed, what it's like to all that kind of stuff is uh, there's a lot of people out there that need not a friend, but just need a non judgmental ear just to listen to you and nod their head and say, I understand brother, or I understand sister. I've been through it. I know what you're feeling. And, uh, you know, I'm here for anybody. I swear to God, anybody in this country that if they're having problems, first responders, I don't give a shit. Cop, fire, paramedic dispatch. And I'm going to throw a dispatch in there. Cause I know dispatchers and it's hard on them too. Um, you hit me up and, uh, yeah, I'm there for you. I'll listen because it's important and it, me- it meant a lot to me then and it still means a lot to me now. 